Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, January 31st, 2021, we conclude our series titled, Biblical Worldview. Today's sermon, Living a Biblical Worldview in a Hostile Culture, will be taught to us by Pastor Joe Infranco. Enjoy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible mercies and grace, your love, your kindness. Thank you for your presence, your Holy Spirit that guides us. And I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to prepare our hearts. Uh, Let us have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church. Father, let us be transformed by the hearing of your word. Help me to speak on the things that you would want said and let all these changes work uh, for your glory and for the building of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this is the fourth and concluding week of the Biblical Worldview series. Thomas went the first week, talked about why the scripture, why the Bible is a reliable guide. Uh, Jeff went the second week and gave a basic outline of what a biblical worldview looks like. Brendan went in week three and talked about other worldviews that we're going to encounter as we live in this world, as we come across people and we interact with them. Today, I'm going to conclude by getting into actually kind of a sort of the nuts and bolts. How do we actually live out a biblical worldview in a hostile culture? Remember, a biblical worldview is how we see everything. It's how we interpret everything. It's the source of our values. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity. And he, he may as well have said a biblical worldview. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything. In the contrast to a biblical worldview is what we would call the culture. The culture is something like the default system. And we live in a culture, so we pick up the values of the culture really subconsciously. We don't always even understand that we're taking in, we're appropriating the values of the culture. Uh, You know, if you were to ask a fish to describe water, it couldn't do so. It's simply its environment. It wouldn't be aware of water unless you took it out of water. And be, the, the thing about the culture is values will change quickly. They'll change year by year and sometimes faster than that. But the standards for measuring a biblical worldview remain unchanged. They come from the world of God. The word, the word of God, pardon me. Let me give this example. Brendan talked about a culture of secular progressivism. Secular progressivism, by definition, is secular. It looks to organize and understand and run the world without God. So if you're setting up a system without God, then the the default has to be institutions. You then have to decide that the right institutions or the right policies are the way that you run a, a, a good society. And if that happens, if that's your trust instead of God, well, when institutions fail, as they inevitably will, when they're inefficient, when, when money is missing and things don't go right, the new institution comes in, and this is what we're seeing in the culture, it has to tear down what came before it because it wants to offer a better solution. And the better solution is, I have a different program. And so as one new 
set of institutions comes in, it inevitably leads to finger pointing and blame. It ramps up hostility. The rhetoric becomes harsher and harsher. And the more we see a secular worldview running the values of the culture, the more we're going to see this increasing. We really should not be surprised by these things that we're seeing. A biblical worldview, by contrast, starts with a completely different approach. A biblical worldview says there is a problem, but the problem is me. The problem is you. Because we were created, but we have sin nature. And that sin nature, unless it's repented of and turned over to God, causes us to do, it's not that we're incapable of, as human beings of doing some good things, but, but the default is going to be for things to go wrong. See, um, a biblical worldview would say, yes, we need institutions. Yes, we want Christians to be involved in institutions. But a biblical worldview would say, my goal as a person is to seek God in humility and to be aware of my own shortcomings. It would be, as Jesus said, to remove the log from my own eye before I try to remove the speck from my brother's eye. And what we believe as Christians is that a biblical worldview is the best hope for this world. That if we follow what Jesus called the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, Strength. And the second he said is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. That that's the great hope for the world. Now, who controls the, the natural way of thinking that we find in the world? Well, the Bible teaches on this, it explains it. The, the word that the Bible sometimes uses for the wor world, when you see it's translated world, is cosmos. And cosmos usually, not always, depends on the context, means something like, the values and priorities of the world. So by extension, it would be something like what shows up in the culture of the world. Here's some examples of what the Bible says. First uh, John 5:19. John says, "We know that we are from God, and the whole world, cosmos, world system and way of thinking, lies in the power of the." evil one. That's the default that we're going to find in the culture. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15. He said, if the cosmos, world system, hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Understand this. This is critical to understanding biblical worldview. What is Jesus saying? We should expect hostility from the world's value system. It's about looking out for number one. And living a biblical worldview will invite that hostility, not may, it positively will invite it. Now it's going to be worse in certain times and places. If, if you lived in one of the more than 50 nations that make Christianity illegal, by simply professing your faith in Jesus Christ in public, you've committed a crime, you could be arrested or worse. You know, every day in this world, 
Eight Christians die. Today, before the sun goes down, eight Christians will die killed simply because of their faith. Uh, statistics tell us that there's over 9,500 close to 10,000 every year churches and religious buildings attacked by people who hate the Christian faith and are going after these things. So knowing that we're going to have this hostility, knowing that this is the promise of Jesus to us, how do we negotiate a biblical worldview? How do we put in effect that we're living for God, that we're living for Jesus Christ in a culture, no matter what happens to the culture? I'm gonna break it down into three steps I call right thinking, right nourishment, and right relationships. Again, right thinking, right nourishment, and right relationship. I'm gonna start with right thinking because thinking is really the key. You want to, in advance, be thinking about a Christian worldview. You know, the scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. When Daniel went to the hostile culture of Babylon, we read early on, it says Daniel purposed in his heart. He, he thought this through, that he was not going to break the law and offend God. And he flourished in about as hostile a culture as you can imagine. The first step of this, though, involves love. Love is the critical part of it. And again, Jesus has told us this. We have to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength. Sometimes, though, we get to just, we get to going through the motions. Sometimes, doesn't it feel like 90% of life is just showing up? Be at this meeting, take this step, do that step, all right? I want to suggest to you, this is going to sound like heresy, so this may be my last week at the church, I don't know, that steps are good. We want to be taking the next step, but we don't want to be taking the next step unless it's grounded and motivated by a love and passion for God. If I lose the love for God and I start going through the motions, eventually they will fall off. I love my wife. I do the things that I do for her out of a motive of love. If I, if I were to fall out of love, God forbid, then th th that won't happen. I'm not going because love is a choice. Then if I'm going through the motions, they're not going to last. Here, look at an example Jesus gives in Revelation chapter two. Revelation two and three is Jesus's message to seven churches. And the first church is the church at Ephesus. And they, they get what's called a mixed review. There's some good and there's some negative. And the good, as you look at the verse, you'll see he commends them for a number of things. He commends them for their, uh, their dedicated, their doctrine good. They've checked out false apostles and rejected it. They're busy. They're doing a lot of good things. There's a lot to like about this church. But then Jesus adds this. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned. Some translations say that you've departed from the love that you had at first. You've left your first love. And the Greek word protos for first would be First in priority, it's no longer the highest priority that you have. The works are taking the place of that. And then Jesus says this, remember, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, he sees it as a fall, and repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. What does that mean? to remove your lampstand. In the context of those chapters, the seven lampstands are seven churches. And when Jesus says, I'm going to remove your lampstand, what he's saying is, you're no longer going to be 
a church in my eyes. Think about that, that's very sobering. See, if you've departed from your first love in a, a comparative sense, it's, it's good to stop and reset. We can be feeling the turmoil of the world around us. Just watching the news these days is a chore and is difficult. I've almost stopped watching the news. Instead, in the morning when I'm making coffee, I leave the news off and I just sit and I, you know, I start my devotional time earlier. But it's got to be in place. There's the example of Mary and Martha, and many of you know this is two sisters. Lazy Mary is sitting on the floor, just kind of like you folks here, just taking it in, listening. Martha's doing, I'm not calling you lazy. Martha's doing all the work, getting more and more frustrated. Probably the pots are banging a little louder. She finally comes in and says, Jesus, I'm serving. Is serving a good thing? Sure. I'm serving and my sister is doing nothing. Don't you care? Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're, you're distressed. You've, you, you're, you've troubled by many things. I'm telling you, Mary has chosen the better portion and it will not be taken away from her. See, Mary was off on the right foot to sit in devotion, hear the words of Jesus, remember the love affair that all the disciples had with who Jesus was and, the, and, and, and with God. And then it's time to serve when the love is in place. You know, God makes a promise to us. He says in James 4.8, um, James says, God says, draw near, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. The remedy for this turmoil, if we're going to have a biblical worldview, is to take that time and draw close to God. I don't know what you've found in, my, in your lives. I, I would guess you've found the same thing. I find it. When I take that time to draw close to God, I find he really does draw close to me. And my actions then become the natural outflow of my love for him. The first step is love. The second step is repentance. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, I want you also to repent. What does repentance mean? We often use an illustration, somebody's walking this way, now they're walking this way. Yes and no. I don't care for the example. Because repentance, the Greek metanoia, literally means to think differently. You see it even when it shows up in the word repent, it gets into the Latinized form of pulse. If somebody's pensive, right, they're thoughtful. But it literally means you think differently. The focus is not on the actions. The actions are just the outcome of different thinking. If I visited a bank robber in prison and I said, oh, I see you're not robbing banks anymore, it's pretty good. Yeah, but they're busting me out next week and then I'm back in business, you know. Okay, I would say, well, all right, there's a problem here. He's not robbing banks, but it's just because he doesn't have the opportunity. But his thinking has not changed. There's not been anything like repentance. See, what the scripture says to us, understand repentance this way. Think of Romans 12, 2, which says to us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the ongoing daily is the tense, by the continuous renewing of your mind. What does it mean to be conformed to the world? Here's a good example. I'm going to tell you my secret recipe for Jell-O. I've never shared this in public before until the first service, and you're going to hear it now as well. I take the packet, I put it in a mold, I add water, stir vigorously, put it in the refrigerator, and I spend the night in intercessory prayer that it will turn out. Okay, maybe not the last part. But in the morning when I open the refrigerator and I take it out, there's that wiggly gelatinous mass. If I put it on a plate, it has taken the form of the mold. That's what conformity to the world is talking about in the scripture, that the world conforms you into its shape. And maybe Jell-O is a good illustration because Jell-O goes into the refrigerator where it's cold and it's dark. You know, Jesus said, you're the light of the world, or the one who walks in the light will not stumble. When we get into a place that we're not really walking in the light, when the atmosphere becomes cold and indifferent to God, we're more likely then to be conformed in the shape of the world. And to the extent we're conformed to the shape of the world, we're going to not be aligned with a biblical worldview and God's thinking for something. Instead, the Bible says be transformed. The Greek metamorphome is the word from which we get metamorphosis. Be transformed by a continuous, ongoing renewing of your mind. And I mean, think of metamorphosis, right? You can picture the caterpillar, the cocoon, and suddenly there's a beautiful butterfly. It's totally different. It has been transformed. So there's love. In right thinking, there's love. There's repentance. And then there is obedience. See, it's not enough to do those things. We have to actually put them in practice. John 14, 21, Jesus says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I'll manifest myself, I'll show myself to him. How many of you would like to be loved by God and loved by Jesus and have him manifest himself to you? Yeah, oh, no surprise, every hand. Jesus says, the one who loves me keeps my commandments because that obedience is the evidence of such a love for God that we want things to be done by his will and in his way. That's why Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Pick up your cross. That's talking about death. If you want to be a disciple, you have to go through a daily process of dying to your old way of thinking of things, the old ways that conform to the world that are out of alignment with the word of God. It's a continual process of sanctification that we're going to go on through in this life. So right thinking, loving God, repentance, and obedience. The second part of living a biblical worldview is right nourishment. A biblical worldview comes from, spoiler alert, the Bible. And if you don't know the Bible, if you're not seriously studying the Bible, getting into it, you know, we have good Bible studies here. You can be a part of studying the Bible and digging in a small group. If you're not involved in something like that, if this is kind of the extent of your involvement, I really strongly suggest to you, get involved in some place where you dig. You know, Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it is 
not difficult, impossible to please God. Well, it's pretty important then, isn't it? Well, where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17 says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, the word of God. See, the word of God is alive, it's powerful. Uh, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is inspired. Um, the word is God-breathed in, in the Greek and Hebrew. The same word is used for wind, spirit, and breath. God breathes into his word. And the Holy Spirit activates us. And there's a promise of Jesus that he'll give us right understanding of his word. Because God's very spirit is somehow packed into this word. Which is why John can say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. See. We, that we have to understand and handle the word of God the right way. Um, you know, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, study to present yourself approved unto God, a workman not ashamed, rightly understanding or dividing is the sense of it, rightly dividing the word of God. There's a way to divide it. You know, I might have a chainsaw. I can power that baby up. I can do some serious dividing. I can take out that tree in the backyard or something like that. But if I'm not using it correctly, I can do an awful lot of harm too. And so that's the idea that you want to get. You want to be handling the word of God properly. Because Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the same verse in Hebrews tells us this. It is a discerner. It will reveal to you the thoughts and intents of your heart. Cardia in the Greek would be like your emotions, your, your, your view of the world. So when we have the, the, the ruler of the scripture and we put our life next to it, it shows us where we're in alignment with godly thinking and where we have gone off and we've maybe gone into the world kind of thinking. So see, again, remember, the cultural norms change quickly. If 30 years ago I said to you, um, sex is a gift of God, uh, God intends it to be used in an exclusive uh, relationship of one man and one woman. You go, ho-hum, what time is lunch? Well, the culture doesn't view things the same way any longer. The culture is departed from the word of God, and if you don't line up with it, it's going to be hostile to you. There'll be accusations. You'll be accused of being a bigot. You're not woke. You're not, uh, you know, you're not progressive. You're not an affirming church. Well, that's what naturally happens from following the word of God. I mean, a recent example now is the idea of gender. Genesis 2 says unapologetically, God created them male and female, ish, isha. There's the image of God into his creation of a man and a woman. But now the most current thinking is, in certain circles, well, your biologies are really your gender. Your gender is what you feel you are. And it's not just male and female back. The genders were multiplying 50, 60, 70, 80. Now the thinker is some things I had to read from litigating uh, once upon a time. So the, the thinking now is there's an infinite number of genders. And there's a body gender. And there's a spirit gender. And you get into kind of a never world that makes no sense. See now, this is a difficult subject. 
Does even hearing it make you uncomfortable? Are you thinking, hey, you know, and that's not what they're teaching me in school. It's like, I think I might be out of the step or something. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. That's the evidence of how it works. That's the force of the culture coming on you to tell you you should abandon a biblical worldview. And we experience that every day of our lives. Now look, let me say this, and I shouldn't have to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. We love all people. We treat every human being with dignity and respect. I've been involved in cases on some of these issues with the person on the other side that we had very different views. We formed friendships. We went out to dinner. With one fellow, I take him to baseball games because he's a Dodger fan. No booing from the audience. I'm not, he is. But the, the point is, every human being is treated with dignity and respect. But, when it comes to these kinds of issues, here's the reality. We are broken people. Every one of us is a mess. We're a product of things we were taught and misunderstood and, and pressures and all kinds of things. And what God says is, take that mess, lay it at my feet, and let me be the one who heals it and repairs it. Don't try to conform the world to your view of the mess, but give it to me. That's why Jesus could say, come to me all you who labor, and you're heavy laden, it's like you're under a weight. Uh, and, and he said, if you do that, I will give you rest. That's what the world is looking for. Take up my yoke, he says, and learn from me, because I'm meek, I'm humble, I'm lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when people come to me with these issues and they say, but Joe, you don't understand. I felt this way since I was a kid. I had this view, I had that view. I'm naturally sympathetic. I love these people with the love of God. I afford them the dignity that every human being is due. But the best advice I can give them is to say, we are all broken people. This was the extreme brokenness I had before I found Christ. I can't always explain or understand how you end up where you do, but take the mess and lay it before God and surrender to him and say, Lord, I don't know how I'm gonna handle it, but I believe in faith that you know what's best for me. And, and somebody you know, might say to me, oh, but uh, you know, I disagree with you on this. Well, respectfully, no. You disagree with Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 19, four and five that Genesis two is correct. He said, haven't you read in the beginning God made them male and female? For that reason, a man will leave his family and cling to his wife and they will become one. So if somebody doesn't agree, you know, you're taking it up with Jesus. See, giving into the culture, and it's hard because we want to be polite, right? We want to be respectful to people. We all want to be liked. But giving into the culture ends up being a fool's bargain. They may pat you on the head now, but as soon as the next issue comes along and you don't agree, they'll turn on you. See, for me, we're all going to stand before God someday. I heard somebody speaking not long ago who said, well, I'm on the back nine, and I was thinking, in that case, I'm on like the 18th hole putting for a double bogey, if that's you know the case. But we're all going to stand before God someday. I would rather hear, well done, good and faithful servant, than to have a pat on the head from the culture because I'm getting progressive and agreeing with them on the latest trend. So um, 
living a biblical worldview takes courage. God wants us to have courage, and the last step in this is right relationships. See, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. I'm putting up Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 is what a lot of people call the go to church verse. And you know, when we represented churches with some of the COVID cases, this didn't happen in Arizona, but for example, we had cases in Nevada where uh, you could have a casino open with thousands of people, 50% capacity, but the church for one hour, you were limited to 25 people. It was actually hostility against churches like, well, you're not as important as spiritual stuff as the money is the, you know, is the important thing. And this would be the verse that they would cite. But there's so much more to this than go to church. You look at the verse, and this is what it's saying. When we assemble together, God gives us as a formula for our good. He says, consider to stir up one another to good works. Encourage one another. The reason we're here is to encourage you just to study God's word but to encourage each other on having courage to stand in a world and be a witness for Jesus Christ. In fact, if it keeps us from going into the cultural view, it keeps us from sin. Hebrews 10 says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, and when you see that word for, it always links back. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins assembling together to encourage and exhort one another is the, is the answer to, uh, to sin. It's how not to fall into the world of the culture and how not to fall, you know, not to be, come under the impact so fully of sin. There's a story about a mountain climber in the Alps and they was climbing a dangerous, well-known peak and uh, the winds at the top were very, very fierce. And he was with the guides, the experts, and as they were approaching the top, the guide said to him, you get to summit first, you have the honor. The man was so excited, he stood up, he started walking toward the top. One of the guides reached out and grabbed him and yanked him down and yelled at the top of his lungs to be heard over howling wind, on your knees, on your knees! Because you see, the wind was so fierce that you needed a lower center of gravity. To stand up and walk up there, you'd be blown off the mountain. If we're going to engage with the fierce winds of the culture that want to come at us, it had better be on our knees in prayer. And it had better be with others with us who can exhort us and encourage us and warn us when we're getting into something that's going to be dangerous. I, I'm just going to focus briefly on one thing, because I think we have to hit this, the, the, the cultural environment around us. This is a real severe test, I think, for all of us, because there's, there's a breakdown of civility, there's an open hostility, there's a distrust of authority, a distrust of the system that goes beyond anything that I've ever seen. And the world's way of thinking demands that you take a side. And if you're on the wrong side, cancel culture will come after you, you'll be vilified, you'll be attacked, you'll lose your job, you'll lose sponsors. This is the way the world system is working. Now what's behind all this? The world is gripped in all kinds of fear 
anxiety, this anger and frustration from the sense of almost something like impotence. But when we love a biblical worldview, it says to the world, there is a God who calms your fears. It says to the world, there's a God who will give you peace. And not peace the way the world gives it, but peace that surpasses understanding. The inner peace that comes from the knowledge of God. It, it says there's a God who will give you beauty for ashes if your life has been smashed and messed up. Who says he will give you unspeakable joy in brokenness. That's what the world is missing. And that's the promise of a biblical worldview to the culture. See, a biblical worldview is not taking sides in a human battle. It is a mistake to think that a person is your enemy. The Bible teaches clearly people are not the enemy. Our wrestling, it says, is not against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, wickedness in high places. That's where the battle really is. And in a fractured world, a biblical worldview is going to be about humility and service and operating in a way that the world doesn't. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up while I just conclude with a few thoughts. Um, if you're tempted to see this as sort of a fight between light and dark, kind of a modified Star Wars formula, we don't know who's going to win, you know. When I'm posting what I'm, I'm on the side of light and, you know, or light and darkness seem to be fighting. Okay, it seems that way because we can be somewhere and it's light or it's dark. They're actually not fighting. Light always wins. Dark, darkness, is the absence of light. When light comes into a room, it immediately dispels darkness. If I'm going into a dark room and I'm flipping on the light switch, I'm not thinking, oh, I wonder who's gonna come out on top of this one this time. No, as soon as that light goes on, the darkness is gone. And we are ones who walk in the light. We are the light of the world, Jesus says, and the darkness cannot overcome it. That's the promise of a biblical worldview. To be just, and with Joshua chapter five, verses 13 and 14, I think is a really important lesson for us. Because it's very, look, I have political views. I think we should be involved as citizens. We should know the issues. We should vote in an informed way. But we don't mix God in a political party. That's not what God intends. In Joshua 5, he's going to attack the city of Jericho. And this very impressive figure appears. It's, it turns out it's a captain the, of the, the host of the Lord. And he's got a sword. And Joshua sees him. And Joshua asks this question. Are, are you here for us or for our enemies? And this angel of the Lord answers this way, no. Some translations say neither. That's a way of saying you're asking the wrong question. That's what the default of this world can bring us. God, are you on the side of the right or the left? Are you on this side of this issue or that side of this issue? God is not on our side. God is on his own side. And the right question is, how much are we aligning with God's truth? 
As soon as we try to grab, drag God down to our view, we're minimizing him. And Joshua has this insight and, and he says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? That's the right answer to all of these issues. Lord, what message do you have for me, your servant? You see, we are ambassadors for Christ, the Bible says. Think about this, what's the job of an ambassador? Does an ambassador go to another country to change, fix things there? No, an ambassador goes to represent his or her nation. We are ambassadors, we're going through this life, we're, we're, we're living in a culture, we're pilgrims in this earth, the Bible says, but we are actually citizens of the kingdom of God. That's why we are ambassadors. Our home, the Bible says, is a city that's made without hands and the maker of it is God. And we're here to tell people as ambassadors for Christ, that's where I'm from. And that's where you can be from too, if you will surrender your life to God. Uh, we're going to take communion together. If you did not receive the elements, please wait for everyone to be served. Raise your hand if you did not, and people will hand those out for you, okay. And while we are handing out the elements, um, I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul discusses communion, uh, the sacrament that we're about to partake in between uh, verses 23 and 29. And Paul says this, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Don't, don't do this casually, lackadaisically, you're not really a believer. And he says this, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. What does it mean to examine ourselves? It's just a time to pause and ask the Holy Spirit to show us maybe the areas in our life that are out of whack. God is not doing this because he's angry or he's coming down on us hard. God is doing this because he is a, a God of incredible, immeasurable, unfathomable love and mercy and kindness. And he wants us to do that because when we get aligned with him, we walk in his joy, he draws nearer to us, and the light that we are in a dark world shines even brighter. So I'm going to ask before we actually take communion, everybody, let's bow our heads. I know this spoke to me when I was preparing it. I could see things in my own life. And with your eyes closed and your head bowed, before we take communion, let's examine ourselves. Maybe you're feeling like you've been pressing. There's just kind of a loss of love or passion for God. Maybe you have felt the pressure of the world. Maybe you feel battered by a hostile environment. You, you just wanna unplug from all the craziness and hostility that's out there. And maybe it's gotten to you more than you want. If that's the case, I wanna pray for you and I'm including myself in this prayer. Raise your hand so I can see and pray for you. Yeah, many hands, so, and not surprising because this is the world we live in and what's happening. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We worship you. We thank you for your word. And thank you for giving us the courage to live according to your word and to be led by the Holy Spirit. Father, for every one of us, and I include myself, I pray, Father, that as the culture gets more angry or more hostile, that we would be, we would have the courage to be all that you've called us to be, to be a witness to you, to be a light in a dark place, to the glory of Jesus Christ, amen. Let's take the bread together now. Bible says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We've been recommending books, of course. Some of these are in the back, some may be gone. Um, everybody who spoke has represented Irwin, has recommended, pardon me, Erwin Lutzer's We Will Not Be Silenced. I would also recommend D.A. Carson's The Intolerance of Tolerance, a really excellent book by Oz Guinness, The Last Call for Liberty. I also want to say we're going to be digging into these issues. I was brought on as a pastor specifically to focus on apologetics and cultural issues. And in two weeks, um, I'm going to be doing a three-part class. It'll be Sunday morning at 9 a.m., on government, be one hour a week. Just what exactly is government? What's the biblical response to it? How does all this thing work? And then we're gonna tackle a lot of the, all the difficult cultural issues. There's none of them that we're going to miss because these are things we need to understand. We need to know how to live these things, how to respond to them, to know what God's word teaches us about them. So Highlands Church, thank you for being here today. Blessings to you. Go with God. Have courage. Represent Jesus Christ. Be the light to a dying world. In Jesus' name.